Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I, I want to ask Stephanie about the Olympics. Me? Yeah. How big of a deal are the Winter Olympics in Canada? Because I, I feel like Canada has such skill in depth across all all the sporting events. Like, does the country just come to a stop for two weeks when the Winter Olympics come? Or is it not as big of a deal as I think it should be? Uh, you know, I, I think that, like, we we like to own the podium, as I said. Like, we're a country that doesn't like to necessarily see itself at the vanguard of anything in particular. But, the, yeah, the, the Winter Olympics is kind of where where we like to, to shine, where we kind of like, you know, like lord it over the Americans. Hey, we're going to get the hockey medal, you know, and I'm not sure actually how many Americans care about that. But for us, it's like, it's, it's a tremendous deal. And it's, it's, it's interesting too, because it's like, it's the one time we could force Americans to kind of pay attention to us. There's the world junior hockey champions, like which happen every year. And the Americans don't really kind of pay attention to that, even, even when we win. Um, so in this particular case, yeah, this is like, pay attention. Notice me, senpai. That's how we roll as a country, generally. I do feel like Americans somehow have like missed out on the winter events we should be good at. We only care about like the extreme sports winter events where like somebody can get like a Mountain Dew endorsement and do some flips and some sort of half pipe or something. Which is very American. It's very American. It's extremely American from like 1998 for some reason. Like that's just, we just froze ourselves in that moment about what we care about winter sport wise. But don't you, isn't there a sport though where it's like you, you have to ski and then like fire a gun or something? That's just what I was going to say. Yeah. That seems like an American sport. Like that, yeah. that, you should own that. Anything anything that involves doing something and shooting a gun. Once they get to like shooting guns out of moving cars, we should be winning that. We probably would. So hockey with guns, that's what you're saying. Yeah, hockey with absolutely. guns. Absolutely. Okay. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, aka Rational Security Canadian Bacon. No, it's not a movie sequel, but it's a fitting tribute to our special guest today who are joining me, Scott R. Anderson, with here with my other two co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And our aforementioned special guest, our expert analyst on all things now security from the North, Stephanie Carvin. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Hello, A. They think I talk slow, eh? Scare. <laughs> <laughs> Simpsons reference. I don't know if people get that, but you will be the one person on this podcast that people will be satisfied with the speed with which they talk if you talk at that pace. Right, <laughs> that's never happened. All the compliments. No, no. That's all people criticize Alan and I for is we're talking too fast. So fair, that's perfect. Fair. I, I will say, Stephanie, I am usually the national security analyst from the north in my frigid abode of Minnesota, but you have you have out north to me. Yeah, you're in, you're in occupied Canada. <laughs> That's actually all my grievances coming out. I'm I sorry, really I like can't that. help it. One of the things that I like about living in Minnesota is that although it is living in the United States, it has it has like a more Canadian flavor to it. It's like it's like twenty percent in the direction of Canadian social democracy. It's very nice. It is, and it you know they kind of sound the same, similar accents. It's, That's right. It's a That's it's right. a it's a lovely part of the world. Yeah, yeah. For listeners who can't see you on video, they should know that you guys are decked head to toe with just furs everywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. Alan has kindly stepped away from his hole in the ice over which he's been fishing. Uh, Stephanie's <laughs> put down the hockey stick for once. It's fine. She's still got the mitts on. So you know, you guys are there's a similar spirit there, certainly. Yeah. We're both eating salads that are eighty five percent mayonnaise. It's a it's a kindred thing. <laughs> <laughs> with marshmallows for some reason, which is weird, weird combo. I got to say, the marshmallow thing is definitely American, though. Like, like <laughs> when I see what you guys put marshmallows on, I am amazed. It is, this is like a whole separate podcast, but yeah. Well, that's pretty much what we do here. It's a food podcast. It's fine. No, this is right, right <laughs> up the lane. Before we get back to the food talk, let us dig in here for what we are calling the Hockey with Guns edition. Because we are joined by our special guest from the North, Stephanie, um, to talk over a couple of topics that are of pressing global interest, but of particular interest to our neighbors to the North and of shared interest to us that we're excited to get a Canadian perspective on. Our first topic for the day, assault on the capital, eh? Hold my labat blue. 
For the past two weeks, our neighbors to the north have suffered through their own insurrectionary moment as thousands of protesters have descended on Canadian cities to protest vaccination policies, leading most recently the capital city of Ottawa to declare a state of emergency. What does this mean for Canada moving forward and what lessons might it be able to learn from the United States' own January 6th experience and vice versa? Topic two, just be glad someone unplugged the shredder. The Washington Post released a deep dive this week on the consequences of former President Trump's long-discussed habit of tearing up official records, records that are supposed to be protected by federal law, not only tearing up those records, but occasionally taking them with him out of the White House after he left office. Does the revelation that White House records have gone missing, particularly relevant now that the January 6th committee is seeking many of these records, some of which may have been destroyed, others of which have been painstakingly pieced together by White House staff using scotch tape, mean something about how we're going to approach this issue in the future? Uh, what is the real cost of Trump's actions here, and what can we do to prevent other presidents from doing the same? Topic three, the biggest Beijing slapback since Misty met W. The Beijing Olympics got off to a controversial start this week as China selected an athlete from its persecuted Uyghur minority to light the Olympic torch, a choice quickly contextualized by NBC commentators who correctly noted that the U.S. government has labeled what China is doing to its Uyghur population as a genocide. What does this incident tell us about NBC's approach to covering this most complicated Olympics and the media's engagement with China more broadly? And will it change China's calculus in trying to host the Games? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you. Sure. So I'm actually going to hand it over very quickly to, to Stephanie because I'm very interested in what she has to say here. I know, Stephanie, you've been doing a lot of research and reporting on this recently. The short version, as I understand it, is that a significant number of truckers have set up a convoy into the Canadian capital city of Ottawa, blocking off a significant portion of the downtown and generally causing problems, honking. Um, I know I've seen reports of harassment of all kinds of just people who live in Ottawa who are just trying to go about their daily lives. In the U.S., at least, the right has kind of picked this up as a, you know, a people's movement akin to American anti-vax protests. To be clear, the truckers, they're protesting over vaccine mandates. There are also, I know, Stephanie, you've written about ties between this movement, other extremist movements. There's all kind of interesting stuff going on in terms of the flow of money to the protesters and how it is that they're successfully staying camped out in Ottawa. So, Stephanie, I want to turn it over to you and just ask, you know, what on earth is happening? Why the city of Ottawa has sort of held back and responding aggressively, perhaps until now? And also just your thoughts on what this might portend in terms of, you know, going forward. Is this going to be a future far right movement in Canada? So thanks for having me on, guys. I mean, I love the show. It's, it's a huge honor. And uh, there's a lot to say. So hopefully this won't just come out as one blah. Um, I, just simply because uh, I, I think we've been following this now for almost a month and it, it, it's a lot. The, the one thing I'm just going to correct right off the bat is this: it's being called a trucker's protest and I think that's a misnomer. It, this is a, absolutely a movement that was organized by the far right in Canada. Yes, we have a far right in Canada. It is uh, comprised of, of different groups. I think we can say there is like a far-right religious movement, one that has very deep ties with the United States. There is a far-right media ecosystem. Now, importantly, we don't actually have Fox News in Canada, but we do have an online far-right, I don't know, blogosphere, do we even use that term anymore, but an online media ecosystem of the far-right in Canada. There is also fringe politicians, uh, many of whom have left mainstream parties that have really picked this up and have been trying to, to garner support based on this. And then and finally, uh, there are actual far-right extremists, people who uh, believe in, you know, Islamophobic, uh, anti-Semitic, world conspiratorial points of views. I would say these are the four big drivers on the far right who exist in Canada, but also have been intersecting with the uh, anti-lockdown, anti-mandate movement really since spring 2020. And what's really important here is that the individuals who have been a part of this movement 
this isn't their first rodeo, as it were. They actually tr have tried to host numerous convoys. Uh, they're, they're really obsessed with convoys. I don't, I don't know where that comes from, but this is like a convoy-obsessed crowd. They did one in 2019, uh, and at that time, they tried to frame it around the issue of a carbon tax. We have a carbon tax in Canada to, to help fight climate change and uh, the oil and gas industry, which has been suffering for a number of reasons. The main issue here is that while they kind of tried to frame this about this kind of uh, energy issues, it was really actually about promoting this idea of a conspiracy theory, the idea that the United Nations, uh, through a cabal, was trying to engage in white genocide through the UN Global Compact on Migration. And so when we saw the kind of protests spring up in, in early 2019, you know, my parents would see people holding anti-UN signs, and they had no idea what that was about. They, they, they would call me and say, Stephanie, what, what is this? Who are these people? What are they trying to do? What are they trying to say? And and yeah, so it, the problem was framing. They, they never really did a great job of framing. Let's fast forward three to five years. Uh, the individuals in this movement, uh, some of them who have set up a Wexit party, that is the uh, an Alberta separatist party. I mean, they may want to join the US. I don't know, you may want to look into that. That's That's between you and Alberta. I'm not sure we want them based on how you're describing it. Look, if we can't get Greenland, we'll take whatever we can get. So this is a great <laughs> option too. I mean, Alberta's a beautiful, lovely province. I absolutely, it's stunningly pretty. But yeah, I mean, the actual Wexit people, I'm not sure you want them so much. You heard it here first, everyone. Scott Anderson in favor of annexing parts of Canada. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time that happened wouldn't be the last. And maybe we can factor that into the discussion. Um, but anyway, so... so like Really the, the, digging deep on that one. We're bringing back <laughs> to 19th century grievances. I like it. I like it. It's all good. Um, so, you know, we, we, Canadians, we, we are like, we lead the world in hockey and passive aggressiveness. So uh, just, just you know, your, your listeners are warned and you are warned. <laughs> uh, so, so fast forward, like the, these individuals, you know, um, have expressed, I mean, they continue to believe these kind of conspiracy things. Uh, they express views about white genocide, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, as I've already said. But in this case, they light a spark which really catches fire around the issue of vaccine mandates. As your listeners probably know, in order to travel from the United States to Canada, you now need to be vaccinated and vice versa. And the, the truckers who haven't been vaccinated, which is only a very small percentage of truckers, probably less than 10% at this point, have... Uh, been really upset about this. So in framing this issue about, you know, their, their grievances, their kind of anti-government stance around this kind of issue around mandates, it, this really caught fire and kind of we've been through this collective trauma together. Canada has taken a far more aggressive approach in fighting the pandemic than in the United States. And I don't say that in a judgmental way. I say that in a factual way. Uh, where I am right now, we're just coming out of our fourth lockdown. Uh, masks are still mandatory everywhere. We have vaccine passports. It is a very hard regime. And I say this as someone who, who doesn't support this particular movement, but I, I too am exhausted. I'm tired, right? I mean, it's not like the, the, what the, the, the people are saying, you know, when they say we don't, they don't want any more lockdowns or mandates. I understand that. We need to learn to live with COVID. But we're, you know, we're not there yet. So, but the fact is that you have an extremist led movement that uses extremist tactics that framed itself around this kind of larger idea of democratic protest, but has, has now effectively sent hundreds of trucks to Ottawa that have occupied the city, have been blaring noises. Uh, there have been anti-Semitic signs, uh, Nazi flags, Confederate flags, Trump flags, actually. There was someone flying a, a Trump flag on horseback around downtown Ottawa, which is a thing you can do in Ottawa in February, I guess. But, you know, it, it's really been and been shocking. We've never had anything like this. We have definitely had big protests in Canada. We've had G8 summits. We've had G20 summits. Nothing like this has ever really occurred. And uh, the city itself finds itself paralyzed. Well, Stephanie, let me ask you, do we have a sense of like any sort of end game envisioned here? Because there's a very nebulous concept of demands, all of which would be dramatic reversals of various policies. Frankly, a lot of them are U.S. policies, not just Canadian policies. But we've seen, by my understanding, although correct me if I'm wrong, a couple of the protests in other cities have kind of wound up or begun to kind of recede uh, at least or been cabined in areas that are less of an obstruction. But Ottawa seems to be the biggest problem area so far. And 
there doesn't really seem to be, I mean, they just declared a state of emergency, I think just the last two days, uh, is my recollection. And so it's, if anything, still escalating. What kind of endgame are we envisioning here? And what, what has Canadian authorities done in the past to try and handle anything comparable? Although I know there's no good parallel. So those are all really good questions. And and actually, uh, Quinta, I think you had mentioned earlier, like, you know, what, why haven't the authorities done more? Uh, you're right. So this protest has spread to other areas in the country, particularly border checkpoints. Uh, there were attempts in uh, this past weekend to have convoys in uh, major cities across Canada. But I think the police forces, having seen what happened in Ottawa, acted very quickly to ensure that didn't happen. Uh, in Quebec City, they started towing trucks almost immediately after after they arrived, right? They're like, okay, you, you can make your point, but you're not sticking around like you are in Ottawa. So, so that's good, I guess. The other issue though, is there's a number of border checkpoints and this does actually impact the United States because I believe, you know, at, at least 20% of your, your trade is, is with Canada in the United States. 80% of our trade is with uh, the United States. And so when that board, those border checkpoints get choked, uh, it's a disaster. Uh, for us economically, maybe less so for you guys, but it, it's it's significant. So at Coots, Alberta, which is a very small town, there was a border checkpoint. Uh, there's been a convoy there really almost since events began in Ottawa. It's getting less publicity, but the, um, the Royal Canadian Mounted, Mounted Police, the RCMP, they've really struggled uh, to contain that one. And uh, in the last two days, we've seen um, new movements to try and block the bridges in in Canada. There's a number of bridges in southern Ontario, uh, the Blue Water Bridge, uh, which has saw some protests. And uh, as we're recording today, there's problems on the Ambassador Bridge, which uh, also connects Windsor, Ontario to the United States. What's odd to me is that the actual owners of the bridge, it's a private bridge, the Ambassador Bridge, uh, privately owned, and the supporters have come out in favor of the truckers. So I guess they want their bridge taken hostage, uh, which is a a thing you can advocate for, I guess. But uh, yeah, so th this is spread. And um, the problem we have is that these individuals are, again, extremists. They're saying they're not going to leave until all the mandates are dropped. And then, uh, but as well, there is a an issue with regards to the organizers who in this past summer put together a memorandum of understanding, which said that they wanted to see the government of Canada dissolved and that there would be uh, appointed a self-appointed citizens council to run things until a new election could be held, which is not really how Canada works uh, for a number of reasons. I won't get into the details, but as you can imagine, that's, that's generally not how our constitution exists. So like I said, these individuals are not interested in, in normal politics. This isn't a normal democratic protest, which, you know, again, we've had a lot of disruptive protests in Canada. And, 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 and it's an important point to make. Protests can be disruptive or else it's not necessarily effective. So it's it's not the fact that they've caused disruption, it's the fact that it's now moved to like a hostage taking. And the fact is that, you know, we saw some politicians originally come out and say, oh, you should negotiate with these individuals. But again, these are, this is, I'm not sure to the extent that it was recognized just how extreme this movement actually is at its core. What is the perception or the reception of this protest, occupation, you know, whatever we're gonna call it, the, the convoy, in broader Canadian politics and a broader Canadian society, right? I mean, I, I don't want to just compare everything to, to the U.S., but obviously the comparisons to January 6th are, are just kind of so obvious. And one of the things that was most disturbing about January 6th and continues to be is the fact that it has not been repudiated across the political spectrum um, and, in fact, has become this cause celeb on on the right. Are we seeing something similar in Canada or or is there broad consensus that, you know, whatever their grievances might be, this is this is not OK? I think it's heading that way. But you're right. We saw similar we see similar division, um, maybe not unlike where the Republican Party was in 2015. Right. Uh, when Trump comes along. And I also I hate. You know, Canadians do tend to view their own politics through the lens of the United States, despite the fact we have a very different political system. But a lot of these currents echo between the two countries. There is absolutely an American influence on the far right in Canada. You know, and, and we have seen in this protest people quoting Americans, um, you know, often out of context with regards to politics and revolution and things like that. Canada doesn't have a revolutionary history. Uh, you know, our, our actual motto is peace, order, and good government. We are the hotbed of social rest. This is not something that happens very often. Um, so I guess 
with regards to this, the, the concern is yes, and, and we can talk about the crowdfunding and and uh, and all these other kinds of issues. But I don't know where this goes for the far right. Like I said, we have had a far right in Canada for some time. So I think sometimes we don't like to acknowledge it, but so far it's remained pretty fringe. And by that I mean the far right parties in Canada have received something like four percent of the votes in Canada, right? It was pretty small. But those far-right parties, because they've attached themselves to the anti-mandate issues, are now getting closer to 10% support in the polls. Uh, I don't know if that'll actually carry out on election day, but I think parties on the right are looking at this. And not only that, they're seeing energy. And Canadian politics is so boring. And gratefully, I was so grateful for that until now. And, And the fact is that I think they see the energy around this movement. They see that this movement has raised tens of millions of dollars, even if a lot of that might be foreign. And I think they want to capitalize on this. So I don't know. I mean, the main political party on Canada, the main mainstream party uh, just actually ditched its leader pretty much due to kind of culture war issues that are not entirely distangled from this protest, right? He is a more centrist figure. He wanted to bring the party more to the center, but uh, the party itself, a lot of those people in it want to be more to the right and they want to see themselves aligned with the truckers. So within the, that party right now, we're seeing a, a huge divide between the, the those politicians, which actually support the truckers, have consistently gone out and had photos with the truckers, have been participating in the protest, uh, and then others in the same party, which are actually saying, you've been heard, go home, this is too much, you, you've, you've gone too far. And, and that's, so one of the interesting dynamics here is, is how this could shape Canadian political future is that, you know, one of our mainstream parties just doesn't seem to know how itself it wants to handle this. Uh, The other thing that is of concern now is that we clearly have a movement in Canada, not a political party, but a movement that can raise lots and lots of money, is now well-networked, has carried out extremely high-profile events that, you know, um, the vast majority of Canadians disagree with, but a very hardcore seem to still be supporting. And that could have an impact on Canadian politics going forward. And that will be influenced almost certainly by, by what we're seeing in the United States. Well, I just wanted to follow up on that and ask about whether or not Canadians are viewing this with kind of surprise or with an understanding that kind of something like this was inevitable, right? You know, you, you right. point out that Canadian politics are, are uh, and have been, blessedly for Canadians, much calmer at least in U.S. politics, right? But, um, you know, before Trump was Trump, you know, Rob Ford was the mayor of Toronto and he had a sort of Trumpist kind of thing going on. Now, of course, he was the mayor of a city, not the president of uh, a country. But it, it does seem to me, as you put it, that we don't take Canadian politics seriously as a par- partial source of extremism. And it sounds like Canadians don't necessarily take it all that seriously. And so, especially as someone who obviously studies this and has been thinking about this for a long time, I mean, what's happening in Ottawa is clearly not not good, but is it maybe a necessary wake-up call for Canadians to realize that, you know, they, as 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 nice as they are and as good at hockey as they are, right, they're, they're not immune um, from some of these pathologies that they've been seeing, you know, across their southern border? Yeah, uh, there's a lot there. I, I would say that in the first... Your first point, Canadians are shocked by what's happening, I would say, generally. We don't see ourselves as really having the problems that exist in the United States. No no offense in, in saying that, but that's kind of the way we see it. And, and I think because of the surprise, one of the first major questions I started getting when, when media started calling was, is this foreign interference? Is this Russia? And the police, the chief of police in Ottawa actually said that this is a foreign-funded foreign coordinated movement. And that's when my phone started blowing up with like, oh my gosh, Russia. Now, my point to this is, this is a Canadian movement. It's it's organized by Canadians. It's being participated in by Canadians. We have to be really careful in when we talk about what the foreign interference angle is here. On the first side, if we go like to kind of pure national security issues, our agencies have been warning for years that foreign countries will look for divisive social issues to amplify in order to effectively make this, uh, you know, to, to mess with Canadian democracy, right? And we don't expect it to be around uh, resource extraction, which is a very controversial issue in Canada, carbon taxes, things like that. In this particular case, it is about 
the really I, I, I guess it's, it's, it's about the, the mandates and things like that. So if we go back and we look and, and we see Facebook and, and or Meta or whatever they want to call themselves now and Twitter, if they go back and find inauthentic activity surrounding this, it will not surround me. It, it will not surprise me in the least. Right. Uh, this is exactly the kind of issue that we do expect foreign adversaries to target when it comes to Canadian politics. Now, that being said, we don't have any hard evidence of that right now. Uh, we have to be really careful in making assumptions. And I think Canadians want to blame someone else for the problems that we have. And we need to own this problem. We need to own the far right. The second thing is here is the not the covert support, but the very overt support we're seeing from American politicians and, you know, something that affects you guys a little bit more. But my attitude to this is like, I think, you know, we, we joked about it, I, you know, earlier, even in this, it, we were setting up and in, in the introduction of the podcast, like, I think Canada is a foil for all political sides in the United States. I think the left sees us sometimes as this kind of socialist paradise that has healthcare, which is uh, not at all true. We, we do have a lot of problems with our healthcare as well. Uh, and then secondly, the right sees us as uh, communism. So I think that the, you know, when I see American politicians commenting on this, I really do believe this is more about America than it is about Canada, because we're looked at through this really weird prism. So I'm trying to like, get my fellow Canadians to kind of maybe relax a bit. The bigger issue is going to be, I think, for our politicians going forward, is how they think about the funding of political movements. We have seen, and this is a lot, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it here, but like we have seen a lot of complaints about U.S. funding of environmental movements in Canada that are targeting our oil and, and trying to portray our oil as dirty. And so there was a huge investigation in Alberta uh, about this uh, that went on for years, and they found that no law was actually broken, even if Americans are financing our environmental movements. And now we are in, in kind of the op opposite, where American money is funding to the tune of millions of dollars this protest potentially. And, and I say like big asterisk here because all the donations are anonymous. We don't know where they're coming from. It just doesn't seem likely Canadians raised $10 million themselves in two weeks. It's, it's just, we're a country of less than 40 million people. It, Canadian dollars or American dollars? Oh, Canadian. Uh, ooh, that's a good, I think that GoFundMe <laughs> was in America. That's a great question. I don't know if it's Canadian or American. It's, I think we're trading at like, like 80 cents. It's 80 cents on the dollars. Yeah. It's like. If it's American it's, dollars, we know who money came from. <laughs> well, that's just it. Like, I mean, we won't actually know where the money came from unless. Our, our parliament, unless our House of Commons sits down with, with these agencies and, and can talk to the actual payment processors to find out where this money came from, uh, because there's no other way for us to know. So that's going to be, but there's also Bitcoin donations. Uh, there may be direct cash payments to some of these organizers. There's so many different ways that this is being funded. It's Honestly, this is like a national security explosion in Ottawa. Um, it, there's just so many issues to unpack. So I apologize for, for kind of going on here. No, it's it's absolutely fascinating. And I think it's a case that American policymakers really need to pay a lot of attention to, because it is such a two way street between these movements and between meaning U.S. and Canadian movements. Um, and there's always this learning curve and this kind of budging about of, of what is a legitimate sort of action and idea. I mean, January the si January 6th happened uh, and has now become, as Alan already alluded to, a, a point where not everybody rejects its legitimacy. And I think there's fair concerns to say, are we going to see similar sorts of actions potentially in the future? Criminal prosecution may tamp that down or not. Here, this is a case where this sort of form of civil disobedience is something we haven't seen at a large scale in the United States, but it's really not hard to imagine. Um, if you know the January 6th protesters hadn't camped on the mall and marched on the Capitol building, but instead parked their trucks all around downtown Washington, D.C., uh, or other major metropolitan area, uh, and hindered the local economy, the operation of government in that manner, you know, they could do a lot of damage and cause a lot of inconvenience. I think as a resident of Washington, D.C., uh, who would be particularly affected by that, and, uh, you know, a city that has had a rough couple of years, honestly, with some of these exceptional things that have happened here. But it really needs to be paid attention to by policymakers, because I think they should start preparing and developing plans to address how they would handle a similar thing happening in American cities, because it's entirely plausible. Another thing I would note, though, is that the international basis of this also just opens up a weird, weird door for counterterrorism policy on the U.S. side. I suspect it's the same on the Canadian side from my loose understanding, mostly from listening to your wonderful podcast, Intrepid Podcast. But uh, it's certainly on the American side, when you have a transnational element of any sort of political movement that has, touches on things that 
might have violence. And in the U.S., a lot of these groups, because guns are such a bigger component, the threat of violence is much more implicitly involved. All of a sudden, things like economic sanctions and other items become much more plausible, but also raise a huge range of real problematic policy questions and constitutional questions. And so, you know, we know that the Biden administration, in theory, is hashing through a bunch of these things, has been since it entered into office. We haven't seen uh, the final statement about how they're going to approach some of these issues. We've only seen this kind of interim statement focused on domestic violence, not the transnational element of it. But, uh, you know, it, it raises all these questions. I think this might be a sign that they are likely to come to a head in the near future because we're seeing this engagement between these two movements at such a higher scale than I think we fully anticipated prior to this. Yeah, I would say like the one thing, I mean, it, it, it may be interesting maybe for a later podcast or a study or, you know, if I can get the nerdiest interpretation of this, but the way January 6th impacted Canada really did have a huge impact on the way we think about threats. I think for 20 years, we anticipated there would be a terrorist attack. We did actually have assault on Parliament in October 2014. It was it was really unfortunate and someone died in, in the attack. Um, but we have also, you know, the, the kind of thinking went from, okay, a gunman or a bomb or something like that through to what happens if an angry mob armed with, and let's, let's keep the stereotypes here, uh, hockey sticks, that they were, you know, that, that they march on a historic building. Like, how do you actually protect from that? I think this may have to change once again, as you say, this isn't January 6th. If it is January 6th, it's January 6th in slow motion. And, and I don't think anyone had ever really anticipated this happening. Although, to be fair, the organizers of their convoy were extremely clear in what they were planning to do, and they've done what they've said they're, they're going to do, and, and, and here we are. I'm not sure that it was taken seriously. The only other thing I would add here, because you did ask about what can be done here to, to kind of solve this problem, there's no immediate solution. The police have kind of, you know, Ottawa being a national capital, it's not, it doesn't have the D.C. issue where it's not a state, but maybe it should be a state or things like that. It is actually a city in a province, the second largest city in the province of Ontario, um, which I should also mention is, is now controlled by uh, Rob Ford's brother, uh, Doug Ford, which is like a whole other dynamic, uh, populism in Canada, alive and well. But I think what we're, what we're seeing here is um, the police are, are trying to kick this up to the federal level, basically implying that they almost want the army to come in and solve this. We have seen this in prior Canadian emergencies. In 1970, there was a, a, an actual terrorist group, the Fédération de Libération du Québec. I apologize to my uh, francophone friends for my accent there, but um, the FLQ who wanted uh, separation and kidnapped uh, high-ranking officials, including one diplomat, uh, James Cross from the United Kingdom. And uh, they, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, utilized a tool called the War Measures Act. It was the only tool that he had and uh, basically uh, declared a state of emergency using the War Measures Act. Now, that legislation was subsequently deemed a little too heavy-handed, and it became the Emergencies Act in 1988, which is a little bit more civilianized. Now, that would take the province of Ontario and another province, basically, you know, or, or there being crises in multiple provinces in order for the federal government to actually declare that. And you would need the Attorney General of the province of Ontario to request that the Emergencies uh, act be be brought forward. Uh, the other thing would be the National Defense Act. Uh, the federal government can employ that, but no one no one wants to do this uh, except for the city of Ottawa. <laughs> um, I think the idea of uh, troops patrolling the street. I don't think this is what the Canadian Armed Forces is good at. Uh, just regular policing, which is in fact what is needed. And they also, you know, I think it would be a propaganda victory for the organizers. They will come in and say, oh, look, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau had to use the military to contain the people, et cetera, et cetera. And this would be featured on Fox News and images around the world. It would just look so bad. What we actually just need is, is policing. And this is maybe maybe the final thing I'll, I'll say about this is Ottawa is a city of bureaucrats. It's boring. Um, we need to weaponize our bureaucracy. Why do these truckers still have insurance, uh, driver's licenses. Um, why aren't we giving out more parking tickets? And, you know, I just don't understand why we're not utilizing just the basic tools. The most effective action we've taken against this trucking occupation was that a lawyer of his own volition, Paul Champ, um, took on a client and got an injunction to stop the honking and said, you know, this is too loud and we've measured the noise and it's unfair. And so we will put an injunction on there. That, and it worked. The honking stopped. You know, the second we've seen just basic policing and basic measures being taken, uh, it's impacted this movement. 
And so I don't understand why we're not taking more of this, but I think that I, I, there's just so many recriminations of this. I mean, for the Canadian far right, for populism in Canada, for how we do uh, funding of political movements, but also um, I'm wondering what's going to happen just in terms of how we understand policing functions just in Canada generally following, following this mess. It's really, it's, it's, it's a, it's like an onion, a big stinking onion with many layers. And, you know, it really when we, we don't want this onion, we just want to get back to poutine. <laughs> When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, we'll have an opportunity to talk about this a bit more in the future. For now, we're going to move on to our second topic, um, going from complaints about bureaucracy to maybe some more direct efforts to cut back on paperwork and red tape by our former president, Donald Trump about whom there was a big expose in the Washington Post this past week, revisiting a topic with a little more context about the consequences that had popped up occasionally during his presidency, which is the president's habit of disposing of presidential records by ripping them up by hand, often in a very deliberate quartered method, in half evidently ripped once and then half again ripped again. Evidently, this was the standard, occasionally into small pieces when very angry, but usually just in the quarters, and then throwing them away or throwing them into burn bags. Related reporting also mentioned that he took several boxes of documents with him to Mar-a-Lago when he left the White House, uh, which later had to be, an effort had to be made to recover them by the National Archives, or actually I believe an office of the White House that coordinates with the National Archives. All of this is to say uh, we now have a pretty clear record that President Trump did not abide by his obligation to the Presidential Records Act, and that it is actually causing problems now. Among other things, we have the January 6th committee, which has now started receiving these boxes and boxes of documents from the Trump presidency, from the National Archives as part of its investigation, many of which we were hearing reports have been taped back together meticulously by White House staffers um, who then pieced together whatever it was that Donald Trump may have ripped up, and many of which are missing by all accounts, or at least there's reports that there's reason to believe lots of records are missing. We don't really always know um, what is and should be there when it's not there. It raises all sorts of troubling questions, not just about what is it we've lost with these records, but also what do we do with a president who doesn't abide by the law? What's the sanction here? Because there doesn't appear to be any real accountability here. Stephanie, I actually want to go back and start with you for a comparative perspective, because I think a lot of Americans are up in a tizzy about this, particularly like nerdy, wonky Americans like the three of us, because we love presidential records. We spend a lot of time suing over them. We spend a lot of time reading them. We spend a lot of time talking about them. And the idea of not having these records is a great, you know, something weighs on us seriously, I think. We see it as a big public policy problem. But are we wildly overreacting? Like, what is the Canadian approach to official records like this and the extent to which they are preserved and made publicly available? So, yeah, I mean... (laughs) Uh, we should rename the podcast, uh, you know, the exciting world of Canada 101. Um, it's it's really uh, just just briefly because I've spoken so much. Uh, we have a very different because we don't have a presidential system, right? Um, our cabinet, which is our executive, is chosen from the legislature, right? It's it would be like having the pre- Biden's cabinet come from. Uh, sitting members of the House of Representatives, which which we don't have. So we have the cabinet, and the cabinet, the whole idea is they're supposed to be fierce debate in cabinet, right? Like ministers just throw out their ideas and they can say whatever they want, provide whatever advice they want. But once a decision is made, you have cabinet solidarity. Absolutely no cabinet minister can disagree with the decision made. And if they do disagree so passionately about it, they must resign from cabinet rather than speaking out against it. So we have something called cabinet confidence. Uh, So all of the hot button issues surrounding 
you know, kind of Justin Trudeau's thinking and, and decisions and things like this, it's really highly class. It's like the highest classification you can get in Canada. And those documents are not available for 20 years. We are just finding out now the decision making around 9-11 to put it into context, right? So uh, it really doesn't exist. I, I, you know, I, I think when you guys talk about your, you know, I hear complaints about Pacer, I hear complaints about like records and it's just so adorable. Like our entire record system is broken or non-existent. We don't actually have a declassification system in Canada. It's been a complaint of people who study uh, history. I'm gonna give a shout out actually to Tim Sale. Uh, he's a professor at the University of Toronto who's been fighting this fight for some time and trying to push the government to create a declassification center, which is something we desperately need. We also have an access to information process, but it's 4,000 requests behind schedule. Uh, the pandemic hasn't helped that. And it's really just a, a terrible broken system. So, you know, the, if the biggest problem you guys have is Trump tore up some documents, that's cute. That's cute. You know, uh, we live in, you know, Canada, the world of, of uh, social peace, but also uh, secrecy. In an extremely unfortunate way, actually. I will say, I once spent some time trying to get some court records from a Canadian case, and it was an absolute nightmare, saved only by the fact that the person in question very helpfully appealed their case. So there was a, I don't know what, appeals court, higher court judgment, which was public, and that saved the day. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, but even then, like, um, you know, I, I was involved in a project which looked at one of our famous terrorism cases, the Toronto 18 case. You To get court documents, you often have to go to the court themselves and you get a physical copy that you have to then photocopy uh, in order to take with you. And you can't put those records online uh, because it's considered to violate privacy. So we actually, you know, for the researchers in the project, we had to put all those documents online gated. Uh, you had to have a password in order to access them because you're not allowed to, wow. to put it on. Yeah, no, it's bananas. But we just take a much stronger view of how uh, privacy works in, in in this country when it comes to, to court records and things like this. And I mean, it's that's why when, when there's indictments in the U.S., I love reading them because you get the whole case right there, the whole series of facts. Like, it's, it's brilliant. In Canada, you find out someone is arrested and you might find out three years later what the evidence actually is. So, yeah, no, your your problems are cute. So th this distinction between Canadian and American standards on the secrecy of public documents is, is, an, is an interesting one. Um, I do want to return to the question of sort of what we're supposed to do, given that in the United States, we do have this presumption that, uh, not just presumption, but a statutory requirement that records are kept. You know, a couple of things jumped out at me from the reporting. The, the first is that it's not just a matter of Trump um, ripping up documents. It's a matter of a lot of his aides would do that as well. So, you know, Trump is not the one, in my understanding, who would put documents in burn bags. That's what some of his aides would do. And, and you know, what, what I think this is another indication of is that, you know, the White House culture comes from the top and you can have as many ethics officials as you want constantly sending out emails and memos and nagging their colleagues to abide by the rules. But if the commander in chief is not setting a, a, a model that, he or she wants those rules to be applied. They're, they're not going to be applied in, in practice. And the other thing that I thought was quite interesting is in one of the Washington Post articles um, that, that have talked about this, you know, some of these aides uh, are, are thinking that, interestingly, because Trump's ripping up of these documents was so indiscriminate, right? It, it, there was didn't seem to be a rhyme or reason as to which documents he'd rip up. He just liked to rip up documents. It's unlikely that he was actually necessarily even trying to escape public scrutiny um, because of the indiscriminate nature of what he was doing. And, and this just reminds me of the sort of constant problem we have when thinking about Trump and his mental state, which is because he is so disorganized and because he is such a kind of an instinctual actor, um, it's often hard to establish um, the sort of mens rea, um, you know, even not that I think he's going to be charged or anything for anything like this, but it's just kind of another example of how Trump's lack of planning about his misdeeds often makes it that much more difficult to punish him. Um, and so that's something that I, I found quite notable uh, about this uh, story. Alan, I had some of those same thoughts. I mean, the the echoes of the Mueller investigation, where we all spent so much time trying to parse Trump's state of mind when it came to the obstruction charges come through very, very clearly here. I mean, the, the example that I thought of had to do with um, his suggestion to White House counsel Don McGahn to basically falsify a document concerning whether or not Trump had told McGahn to fire Mueller, where Trump just told him to to write it. 
And you could argue if you're defending him, well, he didn't, maybe he didn't know, you know, he just, he just thought that he was rewriting things and that, that that's how things do. So that, that's sort of the, the reverse, you know, you can tear up a document and it doesn't matter, or you can falsify a document and it doesn't matter. And because he seems to so thoroughly lack a theory of mind, there's kind of nothing you can do about it other, other than perhaps, you know, implementing actual statutory enforcement measures for the people around him as we've discussed, which seem to currently be be lacking, that that might be the better way to go. Well, I will say, I, I, while I'm generally sympathetic to that argument, having made it myself a few times about Trump's mens rea being hard to decipher because of his own wackiness, I actually think this is one case where it's, that's you have a stronger case here around the transparency bet. Because Trump himself, we have multiple stories, not just of him ripping up documents habitually, but also repeatedly telling people not to write things down as being like a recurring feature. And I- Real lawyers take notes. Yeah. Well, I think these are all things of like, you know, practices that you develop in a corporate environment in which you are constantly worried about litigation, like document control, fear of discovery is like a reality in corporate environments. And the Trump organization lived through a lot of litigation over its uh, history. Right. And so I actually think there's I can see a little more deliberate intent here. Maybe it's I think it's habitualized as opposed to conscious in each individual instance, perhaps. Um, But it's there. And I actually think the bigger parallel here is less to perhaps some of the bigger criminal activities or investigations and bigger investigations Trump administration has been born into, but actually it's handling of um, a lot of ethical concerns throughout the presidency around all sorts of issues. But the part that jumps out to me, because I pay the most attention to it, is it over around the RNC in the lead up to the 2020 election, um, where we saw the White House take all sorts of unprecedented action, kind of blurring the line between what is supposed to be for public policy purposes, the uses of the White House, use of the executive branch, and what is for political purposes. And, you know, holding panels of people in the White House and channeling them to the RNC meeting, using, you know, fireworks over the Washington Monument as a way to finish the RNC and hosting events on the White House grounds because they decided through some fairly questionable reasoning that the grounds were acceptable and okay and could be used for political purposes, but not the interior of the White House. Uh, All these strange arguments that really exist by virtue of the fact that there just isn't an external enforcement mechanism for a lot of these norms. We have, you know, the Office of Special Counsel that looks at this stuff, I think did, um, you know, an admirable effort in, in a number of cases, maybe more questionable than others, trying to crack down on these things during the Trump administration, certainly brought attention to it, fielded inquiries. And there is like a public request process where you can have outside groups actually file complaints about White House officials' ethical practices. But it all goes back to the executive branch, really, and to the president himself, and to the extent to which what action he's going to take. I'm not constitutionally sure it has to be that way, right? There's a strong unitary executive argument that says it does, and that we've seen presidential administrations, the past particularly Republican ones, implement by rolling back legislative requirements and implementing regulations in a certain way. I'm not sure it has to be that way. And I'm questioning maybe this is an area where in this moment, we should see Congress roll the dice and push a little bit on what some people say are its constitutional boundaries and say, we can install some limitations here with real consequences for these people and do it in a way that doesn't, isn't likely to actually interfere with the executive branch's functions around such low hanging fruit, like records retention, but who knows? Well, speaking of hard to enforce legal and ethical norms, let's turn to the Olympics and uh, specifically questions about uh, how it is being covered in the media. Um, this is uh, obviously a, an unusual Olympics, um, partly because uh, obviously COVID means that there are very few actual audience members, which uh, makes the the viewing a little less exciting. Also, um, a lot of the, the the networks that would ordinarily send a kind of small army of reporters to uh, Beijing to cover this, they're not able to. And so the actual um, on the ground coverage is pretty thin. But most importantly, I think, is the fact that this Olympics is taking place, something we talked about a little bit last week uh, on the show, against the backdrop of a diplomatic boycott from the U.S. and other countries uh, because of the ongoing Chinese uh, uh, human rights abuses in of the Uyghurs, right, which the United States has, has called a genocide. So this presents a conundrum for lots of uh, actors involved here, but in part also for the the networks and NBC in particular in the United States that has to cover the Olympics. Now, interestingly, one might have expected uh, NBC not to really say anything and just to hopefully cover the Olympics and move on, but that is not the approach that they have taken. Um, when China selected a, a Uyghur athlete to light the ceremonial Olympic uh, flame, the NBC commentators pointed out and contextualized what was going on and noted the fact that uh, China is doing this despite committing serious human rights abuses. 
So, you know, there are a couple of questions here. I mean, I definitely want to ask Stephanie, you know, how these Olympics are being perceived in, in Canada. Um, but before I do that, um, I want to turn to Scott and, and ask, you know, how you're feeling about whether the Olympics are striking the right balance, you know, given especially your, your I think, frustrations that you expressed last week with the you know, IOC. Um, you, do you think that the way that the media in America and elsewhere is covering this and adding context is helping to strike the right balance between, on the one hand, having an Olympics, if that's something we care about, uh, on the other hand, not papering over the fact that this is going on in a country uh, in which profound human rights abuses are taking place? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'm glad you turned to me, Alan, because this is a continuation, in a way, of the conversation we were having last week about more of the official side of things. And this is the private corporate side. And it ties into a lot of these conversations we've had in the past about what should corporations be doing with their ties to China, given China's problematic behavior? What should consumers be doing or being allowed to do? I got to say, this is a case where NBC, I, I've been somewhat impressed. Now, I, I'm going to caveat all this by saying I have not actually personally watched hardly any of the Olympics so far. So I'm basing this entirely on secondhand reports uh, that I've gotten from multiple people, though, who kind of unbidden, including some people reacting last week to national security, saying, look what NBC is doing. Isn't this kind of interesting? What I think is really noting is that NBC actually is not only bringing context to these issues, they've actually deployed two analysts to the ground in Beijing to do that specifically in person, one of whom is a former Wall Street Journal, now I think he's at Bloomberg, Andy Brown, um, who was previously ahead of, uh, I think it was the Wall Street Journal's office in uh, China, I could be wrong about that, I believe was kind of forced out at a certain point, as well as a, a Yale professor um, who specializes in Chinese language and culture. I, I did pull up a few clips of their commentary, and it's really interesting the way that they are weaving this into their dialogue and actually, frankly, having these two people do as much commentary in a way as kind of the main host who steps back and provides kind of the broader overview of the Olympic Games. Um, they have one gentleman who's on the ground in China doing that, and these two people on board. And then you have the staff that are covering individual events. The rest of the conversation is all happening back in the United States. Now, I think some of the more critical statements, some of the more direct statements seem to be coming back from the United States side. I have to watch more to make sure if this anecdotal um, sense is correct. Um, certainly, like Samantha Guthrie from the United States was the one who made the point, hey, look, China is accused of committing genocide against the Uyghurs in response to the opening ceremonies. Neither of the uh, on-the-ground commentators made that particularly dramatic point. But I think it's good. This is actually kind of what I wanted to see. And I think more qu companies need to feel pressure to do this. Like NBC is both feeling pressure to do this because of its consumer base, particularly in the United States. But I want to hear from Stephanie how Canadian you know, media groups are, are addressing it. But I think they actually is a sign that they think American consumers are sensitive to this, at least elite consumers, people who can shape public opinion or put pressure on them. And two, they think they have enough leverage over Beijing to get away with this, in part because of the Olympic Games and in part, frankly, because of the economic and institutional structure around the economic games. So I may have been a little too harsh on the IOC if they've played a role in supporting these access to journalism here. I'm not sure they really do. I think a lot of it might be NBC's own market share, frankly, more than anything. But I still think this is actually a sign of how media companies, and frankly, many more private companies need to start approaching China and how consumers do. Because I think consumers need to reflect in their purchasing and consumption of different products, their objections to China's behavior to drive these companies to respond accordingly. So this is a really interesting conversation. Uh, you know, we do get some of the NBC coverage here in Canada, and um, it's 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 always interesting to, to watch and hear and see the Olympics through like the eyes of another country. Here in Canada, we I, like, you know, Again, the Winter Olympics is the time we can force all the other countries to pay attention to us. And so it's very near and dear to the hearts of Canadians. But that being said, there was a poll done as the Olympics began, which showed that 47% of Canadians were going to try and avoid watching the Olympics entirely. And that was exclusively due to China's human rights records. What's happening in, in Xinjiang and, and with Uyghurs has also been recognized as a genocide by Canada's parliament. Uh, it's an issue that is very, very uh, prominent in Canada. And as we have seen uh, China take more aggressive steps towards uh, Taiwan in uh, Hong Kong, there's a lot of Hong Kong Canadians that are just in utter shock at what's happened there. That, yeah, absolutely that, you know, the, the Olympics just 
feels different this year. And I have to say, I include myself in the 47%. It's hard, but I, I will not be watching. I'm boycotting um, largely on, on human rights grounds. Uh, one thing that is interesting to me, though, that I would just mention is what's interesting is that as the Olympics were taking off in Canada, um, what we have seen is that there's been a First Nations bid. Um, so our Indigenous groups uh, in, in British Columbia, they're actually putting together their own, separate from the Canadian government, bid in order to host the Olympics. And that's interesting because I think, you know, it's it would be hypocritical for me to talk about the genocide in Xinjiang without mentioning the fact that, of course, we've engaged in genocide against our own uh, First Nations and Indigenous peoples here in Canada. And that's being increasingly recognized. So wouldn't it be interesting to see a group like that actually host the Olympics that kind of, you know, helped to bring back uh, some of their, their heritage. I don't know what the logistics of it are. I'm not a specialist in this area, but I, I think it would be, you know, that's the kind of thing that the Olympic uh, International Committee should be looking at, would be looking at the, uh, you know, are there ways to, to host the Olympics that would actually reaffirm human rights rather than uh, trying to ignore them entirely. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I really hope it, it goes forward. I'll be crossing my fingers. I do wonder what it is that has made Canadians versus Americans more willing to boycott. I guess I haven't seen any polls of Americans, but my my anecdotal perception is that I know very few people who are not watching the games who normally would, including, you know, mo most of these are people who are very aware of China's human rights record and concerned about it. I mean, I, I wonder whether part of that might have to do with, as you say, Stephanie, there's a more prominent Hong Kong diaspora in Canada. And also that, of course, you all have just suffered through the imprisonment of two Canadians in China for a very long time, which, you know, I think we, the team rational security was, was paying attention to, but obviously just hits very different when it's your own citizens. So for Americans, perhaps it's sort of who aren't immediately connected to the human rights abuses, it's present, but a little more distant than it is for Canadians. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, we felt really vulnerable during that time. I mean, um, I should note the Biden administration played a huge role in, in trying to free the two uh, uh, Michaels, uh, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. But I should also note that China is detaining dozens of Canadians at this time. Uh, we don't talk about them because, honestly, they're Chinese and they're not white but they're Canadian and they're still being detained. Uh, so, uh, you know, I try to speak about this. There's a, a, a uh, you know, prominent Canadian Uyghurs who are still being detained, and we don't talk about them as much, but we should. And but I do think that efforts to 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 have these conversations within Canada has had an impact on this. And what is also really interesting is that the popular opinion of China generally in Canada has gone from you know relatively high to like pretty low, like thirty percent of Canadians, you know, from something like seventy percent of Canadians having a favorable opinion of China. It's just really our perception. Of, of this has been, uh, of that country and the way it's it's treated us. not And not just the Michaels, not just human rights, but also the way it has targeted Canadian products, uh, Canadian industries um, has also, we've, we've suffered from that as well. So yeah, yeah, a lot of Canadians just deciding not to tune in. Yeah, I, I just want to follow up on, on the, the broader question of China's favorability ratings, whether in Canada or in the United States or in other countries. Um, and, and this to me is kind of the most interesting question geopolitically about these Olympics. And I guess we'll have to, to, to see how it shakes out. But, you know, is China benefiting from holding the Olympics? I mean, that that is kind of like always an interesting question about an Olympics and whether or not it, it helps a country with its international uh, stature. I mean, that's obviously a big part of what the Olympics are for. That's obviously what the first Beijing Olympics was for. And, and here I, I am curious, you know, between, uh, you know, on the one hand, China is putting on a logistically speaking successful Olympics. Um, and so presumably they can argue that, you know, their um, managerial and organizational capabilities with respect to COVID are, are working. But at the same time, I think other countries, other news agencies are doing a pretty good job keeping close to mind the fact that this is going on against the backdrop of an ongoing human rights violation. And so, you know, I, I wonder at the end of the day, whether this sort of Olympics, you know, helps China's reputation or 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 hurts it. And I think we'll just have to to see how it shakes out in the next, you know, couple of months and years. You know, I thought a lot about this during the whole Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor, uh, Huawei incident. And I think the most important audience for China is always going to be China. I think that it, it, like it, the fact that it's sending a message to its own people is always going to matter more than the message it's sending internationally. Well, that brings us 
to the end of the time we have to talk about these topics for today, although we have a few more weeks of Olympics left and we may yet have reason to revisit it because we don't get that many opportunities to talk about uh, this particular intersection of issues as much as we might like. And if we can't watch the Olympics, damn, at least we can talk about it. So uh, there's an option there. But this, of course, would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to think over for the rest of your week. Alan, let me turn it over to you first. So speaking of talking about the Olympics, uh, my object lesson is some very, very entertaining Olympics commentary by the excellent comedian, uh, Leslie Jones, who has made uh, kind of something of a, of a side project of hers to live tweet her commentary on Olympics, uh, past Olympics, and this one as well. And in particular, uh, she released a very, very funny one minute um, kind of response video to the freestyle mogul skiing which is an incredibly impressive uh, event where you go down a bunch of moguls and then you do a bunch of jumps and you flip around a bunch of times. It looks completely insane. Uh, and I think she just really, uh, really nails the reaction of someone who doesn't understand how you can hit a bunch of moguls, not break your knees a thousand times, and then do three flips, which is something that I feel uh, every time I watch this fantastic and terrifying looking event. So. We'll link to the tweet with the commentary. It is well worth your time. It is a very funny one minute. And if you are somebody who reads Lawfare or listens to our podcast regularly, you may have encountered uh, Professor Beck Ingber uh, before, who is at, I believe, Cardozo Law School now. Leslie Jones did an amazing commentary on her backdrop during an appearance on MSNBC maybe a year or two ago that is phenomenal uh, and worth listening to. I don't know if Leslie Jones still does that, but she was doing these kind of commentaries about people's backdrops, her own kind of room raider sort of scenario and did one of Beck's that is phenomenal. Uh, so we'll see if maybe I can find that. I'll try and thread that back in for the for uh, the show notes, but worth checking out if I can't find it. Quinta? I'm going to do some log rolling for my object lesson. Some of you listeners may have also heard my voice on the Lawfare podcast doing the segment that we've been calling Arbiters of Truth on content moderation, why the internet is bad, all that fun stuff. Um, happy to announce we now have a separate feed for it. So it will still be appearing in your regular Lawfare podcast feed on Thursdays. But if you are looking specifically for episodes of that series, you can find them on a separate Arbiters of Truth feed, which we will link. Um, so Evelyn Dueck, who does the show with me every week, and I are very excited. And please subscribe if you're interested. For my object lesson, I have a beef to share with America's new, very eccentric mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, who took the opportunity to do uh, what may have been one of his very first press conferences as mayor, I think it might have been, to cook a bowl of vegetarian chili for everyone in attendance shortly before he was forced to confess that, in fact, he's not a vegan Strictly, at least, because he does not eat fish, but he does maintain a mostly plant-based diet. Uh, one of the, the the more interesting exchanges I've seen uh, in any sort of American political moment. But I have this to say to you, Eric. All right, taking your platform for discussing important policy issues and trying to turn it into a vegetarian cooking channel <laughs> is my bit, and you need to back off. So, in competition of Mr. Adams, Mayor Adams, I am giving. You, the Rational Security listeners, not one, but two vegetarian chili recipes that I've crafted in prior years, one of which actually won a prize in a chili cook-off from a very prominent Elite Bean Society sponsored uh, a few years back. I'm excited. The Super Bowl is coming up. I want some Super Bowl chili. This oh. sounds delicious. One is like a chili con carne, but without the carne, with three beans instead, kind of a red chili. The other one is a green chili, which is something I had never experienced before I married a woman from the Western United States, but is quite delightful, especially if you can find the right type of chilies. Scott, are you one of those Rancho Rancho Gordo bean cultists? Oh, yeah. It's prior prior object lesson. We've discussed this at length. My green chili won, uh, I think, an honorable mention. It's like second prize in their chili cook-off a couple of years ago. But the red didn't. And the red, I think, is better. But regardless, I will, I will put it out there for people to check out. And uh, if you cook it, let me know. I also like that Scott has a beef with Eric Adams. Yeah, I did notice that. I, I want to say I noticed that. Yeah. I also <laughs> thought it was a pun. It's the only use I get from beef. Okay. Nice. I'll take it. Stephanie, while you take us home. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I've given you so much of the exciting world of Canada um, that I want to just then highlight a book that I think actually might be of interest to Americans. Um, it's Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. It's by um, 
one of uh, you know Canada's leading experts on uh, counterterrorism financing. And it's not just about Canada, it's about the world. It's just such a really great introduction and deep dive on this issue um, of, of countering uh, terrorist money. It's been really important in thinking through some of the issues and relating to the convoy and what may or may not constitute national security threats. So if you have a chance, you can order it through Lynn Reiner's website. It's Illicit Money Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century by Jessica Davis. And not just that, we're actually uh, about to publish a book review of the book for Lawfare. So if you would like to read about the book, which is excellent, according to our reviewer, uh, you can do that shortly. Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Excellent. Well, for better or for worse, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, as well as links to the articles and object lessons we discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at thelawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And whenever and wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your friends and loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Alan McQuinta, and our special guest, Stephanie Carvin, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 